The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and I am your host for an emergency edition of Hang Up and Listen. Every time since this uh, podcast has been in existence on the United States men's national team does not make the World Cup, Stefan Fatsis and I convene to gnash our teeth, rend our Pulisic jerseys, and do other things that one does when one is sad. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Um, we just talked a couple weeks ago on the show about kind of creating an emotional distance between yourself and your fandom after an upsetting defeat. And you mentioned that the U.S. Uh, national soccer team was the one team where you had the most uh, challenging time doing that. And failing to qualify for the World Cup, as the U.S. did and losing to Trinidad on Tuesday, is a type of sports defeat, on-field sports scenario that I think you can legitimately be extremely upset about. It has major ramifications. It is like a years-long recovery process. And so uh, I validate my own feelings and your feelings and everyone else's feelings out there who are really sad and angry and pissed and every other emotion. I'm pissed. I'm disappointed. I'm kind of gutted. And last night watching that debacle in Trinidad was utterly emotionally deflating. And I, you saw it building. I mean, it wasn't by the end a total shock to me. I think with about 10 minutes to go and I'm not trying to be, you know, to claim any great clairvoyance, but I turned to my wife and I said, they're not going to make the world cup. And that was before Panama scored to go to beat Mexico. Um, you just, I felt no sense of urgency. I mean, it didn't help that there were 14 people in that stadium <laughs> and there was the, this is all the Trinidadian fans fault for not showing up. The buzzing sound of the, of the generator, I guess, or of the, of the, of the water pump that was clearing the, the track around the, the, the field. But that, that had nothing to do with Trinidad, but it had everything to do with sort of how I felt emotionally watching the game, that there was no energy and that the players and the coaches on the United States, it seemed, did not find a way to impart that energy, to convey that sense of, of desperation that was needed. A friend of mine forwarded a tweet that a friend had sent him this morning saying that if there's any evidence that Bruce Arena delivered a sort of Herb Brooks 1980 after the U.S. goes down against Sweden in the gold medal game, he'd like to see it because that's what they needed. But Bruce Arena doesn't do emotion. Bruce Arena is arrogant. Bruce Arena couldn't believe that the U.S. didn't qualify. We were supposed to be there, he said, after the game. Well, it has felt preordained because ever since Paul Calgary scored that goal in 1990 against Trinidad and Trinidad to send the U.S. to the World Cup for the first time since 1989. 19- yeah. Yeah, sorry. Uh, he did it in 1989 for the 1990 World Cup. Um, that was the first time they made it since 1950. And ever since then, there have been kind of bumps in the road and games that were must win. But the fact that the U.S. had always come through in those situations, you know, as the the losses kind of piled up in this cycle, the Costa Rica, first Costa Rica loss, the second Costa Rica loss, the Mexico loss. The Linsman getting fired. Every time one of these things happened, we heard the same thing, right? It's that 
CONCACAF qualifying is very forgiving. The points are still out there for us. Let's look at like the ESPN soccer power index and it's still at 50% or now it's at 70% and going into this game, it was 93%. And it seemed like math actually wasn't (laughs) really relevant because the US was just going to make it and nothing that had happened on the field before um, had done anything to to change that just because this is always this is always what happened. And the thing that made it the most surprising, I think, um, to me was when you look at a big upset in sports, um, whether it's like Howard beating UNLV or, you know, that was a recent one or any or any other one, the the underdog team they're like underestimated or maybe there's not a kind of accounting for how much talent they have. But in the case of Trinidad, they weren't really trying to win the game. They sent out a team. This is a, a, a nation that had won one of its previous nine qualifiers. They didn't even send out their best team, this team that was like by far the worst in the hexagonal. And the U.S. allows in an own goal and there was an amazing strike for the second goal, totally legit goal. But the U.S. could have allowed three or four if other things were called. And so this felt like a game where the U.S. totally did it to themselves. It wasn't like their opponent really came out and and took the game from them. And that was what was most upsetting uh, about it. And what I think was most emblematic is that the U.S., should qualify, and the only way that they that they won't is by self-destructing. They looked terrible in the first half from the first minute to the 45th. And then there was five minutes of urgency, and Christian Pulisic scored a goal, and then that was followed by another 45 minutes of, of incompetent soccer. Oh, the pitch was bad, it was wet, it was thick. I haven't actually seen people making those signs of excuses today. I don't. I don't get the sense that people are making well, those excuses were, those were, for the performance. Those were excuses before the game. <laughs> the performance was an abject failure. It it makes no sense. And you can say that we're not as good as the European international teams, which is true. That our player pool isn't as deep, which is true. But these are good football players. These are players that play for, in some cases, very, very high-level teams, or at least in Christian Pulisic's case. They play in the Mexican League. They play in other Europe for other European teams. DeAndre Yedlin is projected to be a, you know, a starter in the Premier League for, for a long time. And to come out and play like that, it is just mystifying. Especially after they beat Panama 4 to nothing on Friday. And that's the thing. The two teams that qualified ahead of the U.S. in the home matches in this cycle, the U.S. beat Panama 4 nothing and Honduras 6 nothing. Mm-hmm. And again, this gets to my point of the American team did this to themselves. They were better than these other teams. And if you watch the video of the Panamanian announcers celebrating Panama going to the World Cup for the first time, you obviously have to feel incredibly happy for them. And that's like, what an amazing accomplishment. But I think a lot of that joy is like, I can't believe that this, uh, that this happened. Like it, it wasn't something that was expected. It wasn't something that 
should have happened based on the quality of the players and even um you know the US even the US's performance and in the hex for how bad it was I think they were still better than Panama and Honduras at least if you look at the kind of results among that trio right so you've got two issues basically one is what happened during this qualifying cycle that led to the United States of America not making the World Cup from one of the weakest regions in the world. And this is a gimme. I mean, three teams out of six qualify and a fourth gets to play, in this case, Australia in a, in a home and home. And that's going to be that's going to be Honduras. So you have to isolate these two issues. One is what caused this to happen? What flaw in the makeup of the team, in their preparation, and in their coaching caused this isolated failure. And it didn't take very long, obviously, to get to the second and much longer and deeper conversation, which is what's wrong with U.S. soccer? And what does this portend for the structure of the U.S. Soccer Federation and for the system that we have for developing elite talent in the United States? Well, I would say on the first thing, you obviously have to separate it out into the Klinsman stage of qualifying and the arena, the arena stage. Um, Klinsman was there for the first two matches, um, which, you know, they were horrible. And they lost to Mexico and Costa Rica. And then they, then he got fired. And I think, you know, there's also been some conversation the last few days about like Klinsman was right and he had the right idea about how to develop talent and how to build U.S. soccer um, in a larger sense. But the players hated that guy's guts and they didn't like to play for him. Um, tactically, he'd been criticized ever since he was in Germany as as a manager for, for being weak and ill-prepared. And I think after those first two matches, all those complaints seemed to be borne out. Then when Arena came in, it did seem legitimately that the he gave the players better direction. They felt more guided by him. The um, results were better. And he liked to point to in his kind of arrogant way, as you noted, Stefan, that they had only lost one game since he took over, which was the another debacle against Costa Rica. But all of these things kind of piled up such that they were in position to not qualify. And so I think there was just like an accretion of different sorts of things. And in this last game, it felt like tactically they went with what worked against Panama. And this was not like Monday morning quarterbacking because, you know, the piece we ran on slate after that game was we obviously can't go with this formation again because Michael Bradley is just exposed at the middle of the field and they're going to need to like tighten up defensively, especially on the road. And instead they came out with the exact same lineup on, you know, pretty short rest. Bradley, again, having very little cover defensively. They put Omar Gonzalez, very slow-footed player, on a bad field to cover very fast players. And, you know, Gonzalez should have had a penalty called against him. He was at fault on the own goal. And so just these very kind of small things with, the with you know, putting the wrong lineup out there, putting the wrong player out there, having the bad field. If the U.S. hadn't fucked up in the earlier matches, that wouldn't have mattered. It would have been mattered. Mirrored. It shouldn't have mattered. I mean, Jeff Cameron didn't play. He didn't call in Fabian Johnson from Germany. I mean, you can point to isolated small things, but in aggregate, we shouldn't lose to Trinidad and Tobago 
at home, on the road, on Mars. I mean, it's they're virtually a semi-pro team. And they got some dudes in the Trinidadian domestic league. They do. And the Mexican second division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. It's true. Um so the the failure seems it's just incomprehensible in some ways. How does a team of players who all play in at the worst major league soccer and better leagues go out and lay an egg like this in the most important match of their lives in terms of assuring progress and stability in U.S. soccer? Making the World Cup is a pretty important game. Well, I mean, it seems like there's an obvious answer there. It might not be a a satisfying one, but the answer is they came out really tentatively. It seemed like maybe literally they were wearing the wrong shoes and they were just like falling all over the place. Mm-hmm. They let in this own goal, which was bad luck. I mean, it wasn't it, great defending. It either. wasn't great defending, but it was like a weird ass goal. And then, you know, before you know it, this dude sends in a free kick that would have been a goal against any team, probably anywhere. Maybe Howard was poorly positioned, but. Once you get down early in a game like that, they flipped their shit. And you have to understand that. Obviously, they were freaking out. But again, these are like micro things that can happen in a game no matter who you're playing. And Trinidad has made the World Cup before. The U.S. has lost to Trinidad Mm -hmm. before. It's not like, you know, they're losing to Vanuatu or something. Like, they're competent. We can... You know, the U.S. should never lose to them, but they have and they probably will in the future. Um, But it just we shouldn't be talking about the micro decisions of of a game game on in like a tiny stadium on the last day of qualifying. And let's be clear, the U.S. not only abdicated its own ability to control its destiny, it placed the hands of of the, the fate of qualifying in what would happen in these two other games. Panama had to beat Mexico and Costa Rica had to lose to Honduras. Right. That's why, according to the ESPN Soccer Power Index, there's only a 3% chance that what happened on uh, Tuesday would happen. Right. Because Panama wasn't going to beat Mexico. Honduras wasn't going to beat Costa Rica. Except that CONCACAF, (laughs) I mean, Panama scored a goal or was credited with a goal that the ball did not go into the net, did not cross the line. It wasn't a goal. Um, and whereas four years ago, the U.S. bailed out Mexico, who would not have qualified for the for the 2014 World Cup had the U.S. not beaten right. Panama, I think. Um, would it shock you if Mexico and Costa Rica didn't put out their best defensive efforts in these games? They were winning. I mean, they were, they were winning. winning. They were winning earlier in the game. Yeah. I don't. I don't think you can pin anything on uh, on those teams. And maybe the Mexico in 2014 is a good transition to the larger, mm-hmm. bigger picture issue here because the conversations being had today is maybe, you know, we're in the bargaining phase. Maybe this yep. is a good thing. Um, it's a shock to the system and that's what they need to get fix things and turn things around. Blessing in disguise. So Mexico had a similarly awful, just awful qualifying cycle in 2014, was in the exact same position the U.S. was in and just got bailed out by doing absolutely nothing of their own accord, similar to how the U.S. would have been bailed out if results had been in the um, 
different in these other games. You could not argue that Mexico did anything better or different than the U.S. in 2014. They made the World Cup. They now are in like kind of a high cycle for Mexican soccer, obviously an entirely different history and tradition and structure there. But it makes it just a little bit hard for me to like go full on like this change. Missing the World Cup is like absolutely had to happen to fix things. I'm not sure that that's true. I'm not convinced of that And I'm not sure that it will fix anything. I'm not convinced that that's true either um, because the player pool is what it is. This is not a terrible player pool. I don't think it's entirely a function of of whether the talent that was on the field um, and on the bench, though Chris Wondolowski, um, indicates that the U.S. is in some desperate state. Um, But there are gaps. Brian Schiaretta had a piece on American soccer now that isolated this development gap, that there are these missing years of kids born in the early 90s that have that left this team with a lot of veterans and some younger players in the pool and so not the, a lot of players in the core prime performance years in the mid, mid to late 20s. So between like the Yedlin Pulisic era and the like Bradley Dempsey era. Right. Right, that there was a real gap there. And the piece does point out that there were changes made that have been made in subsequent years that have helped create a stronger player pool for um, the U-17 to U-20 current players. The U-17s are, I think, 2-0 and at the, at the U-17 World Cup right now. There are a bunch of promising players who are playing in Europe. There is a, a, a much more optimistic feeling about the state of this player pool um, moving forward. So you could make that argument, Josh, that – Whatever. This team wasn't going to do much in 2018 anyway. Um, It's a disappointment for us as fans because we love seeing the U.S. in the World Cup. It's fun to root for. It's fun to follow. You never know what's going to happen. The games have always been exciting. It makes for an even better summer of soccer watching when your nation is in the tournament. But And we must say the U.S. has done pretty well at the World Cup, like making the knockout stages just compared to their – talent level yeah. i think and yeah. it's it always the u.s and the world cup at least since they like finished last what was that in in 98, 98. That, they, that they finished last in 2006 was bad too but like more often than not the u.s making the world cup has been like a good and joyful experience for the american soccer fans. yes yes so so let's set all that aside and you want to talk structurally you know what has to change was there complacency in U.S. soccer? I don't know. I mean, I'm not in there. I don't work in there. But people do argue that that the culture needs to change from the players to the U.S. Federation to the coaches, that there isn't a sense of, of drive and urgency. Um, so losing here will be something that, you know, who do you feel most badly for? I feel badly for Clint Dempsey, especially for not getting to play in one more World Cup. And I feel badly for Christian Pulisic for not having the opportunity to gain the experience at age 19 to of, of playing in a World Cup and to maybe play in four or five World Cups over the course of his career. Yeah. The flip side there is that how does this not energize someone like Christian Pulisic to want to be the leader of, the, of, of U.S. soccer going forward? And then the step back then when it comes to the player pool is what do you do? Well, I don't think Clint Dempsey or Michael Bradley or Tim Howard should ever play in a national team game again. We're done. I mean, there's nothing for them to play for, friendly or not, going forward. Maybe a farewell game and a nice jersey <laughs> and a thank you for your service. Harsh. 
harsh, but that's, you know, if the goal here is to restructure this program, then let's restructure the program. Let's stop patting ourselves on the back about how wonderful our players have been over the years and savor these great moments. There were great moments and we love those moments. And Clint Dempsey and Tim Howard were fantastic players for the U.S. But is Clint Dempsey allowed to get that record setting goal or is he, is he done Zoe? Done. <laughs> Landon Donovan probably would have scored four or five more had it not been for Clint. Sorry, sorry, Clint. Sorry, that, Clint. that ball should have gone two inches uh, to the left and yep. not hit off the post. Um, that is a sliding doors moment though. What if that, what if that ball goes in late in that match? Very different conversation going on today. And it just goes to show that this, these are very small margins that lead to entirely different conversations and entirely different trajectories. Like Bruce Arena is going to be out as he would have been manager. out anyway after the world cup. Sunil Galati is probably going to be out as the head of U.S. soccer. I wouldn't go there that quickly. Sunil Galati is a very influential force with FIFA. He has done a lot to raise the level of the U.S.'s involvement and uh, and and respect at international soccer levels. He's still going to be important in ensuring that the U.S., Canada, Mexico bid for the 2026 World Cup gets across the finish line. Not that I think that's going to be in jeopardy because the economic value to FIFA is so overwhelming that the U.S.'s failure to qualify here is really irrelevant. Um, but there could be change there, too. The more important change isn't going to be who the next coach is, though that's obviously important. Maybe it'll be an American. Maybe it'll be an American who is you know, been to the World Cup, but also experienced failure. Maybe someone from that generation, you know, the Tab Ramos generation. Um, but the, the bigger issues are what has to change structurally. And there have to be changes, you know, and, and we're talking about this again. If Clint Dempsey's ball goes in, maybe we're not talking about structural changes, but maybe these structural changes long term are what U.S. soccer needs. Maybe for all of the rethinking of the way we're developing youth players, maybe it's not working. Maybe it's not working well enough. Maybe culturally something does have to shift away from the pay-for-play, pre predominantly suburban focus on how we develop and train players in a very – even in U.S. development academies in a very sort of rigid manner, not as much free play, too much 11 v. 11, um, not, not enough just throw the ball out, let the kids play and stop giving instruction – take the best talent and give them the, the, the nurturing, creative impulses that someone like Christian Pulisic developed, not through the U.S. system. Christian Pulisic, you know, we talked about this on the show. Christian Pulisic is an outlier in that he basically bucked the U.S. development system. He didn't go to the best club in his area. He didn't play in three games a week and practice three times a week in a rigid system. He played a lot in the backyard. And then he did a year or two at Bradenton at the U.S. Academy, and then he got the hell out of the country and went to Germany. But Stefan, as we also talked on the show, U.S. soccer has rebuilt its development system yeah. around the lessons supposedly learned from Pulisic. And if it had worked, we wouldn't know it yet. True. And everything that I was reading before, you know, the – senior men's national team failed to qualify was about how the talent on the U-17 team, which you mentioned before, like their players like Josh Sargent and Tim Weah and Andrew Carlton. And these guys are not old enough to mm -hmm. make an impression and maybe some percentage of them won't pan out. 
But again, I just come back to Mexico in 2014. Nobody would say that, you know, kids in Mexico aren't like learning how to, aren't, you know, don't care about soccer enough or aren't, there's like going to be a different answer for different places. And I just fear like, the the point that An you made reaction. Well, the point that you made about this generation gap, we know that the coaching um seemed poor at the senior level. The roster choices seemed bad. And you can't make any excuses about what happens over a 10 game qualifying cycle. They obviously earned their you know, their fifth place position. But is is there a connection between what Klinsman and Arena and the players did and didn't do and what's happening on like a field of 10-year-olds or what's happening in India with the U-17 team, I don't think we know. And I mean, I guess you could argue, sorry for the filibuster. My last point is, I guess you could argue that no matter how well it's going at that lower level, it's probably still not good enough. Right. And you know, and, and I think that's the point. This is the Josh. shock to the system. This is the shock to the system that everyone needs. I was talking to a neighbor of mine whose kid plays in one of the development academies is 11 years old. And up until now, he had been playing for a club where that was modeled on a Brazilian system that was up outside of the U.S. system, didn't didn't follow U.S. development training. And the, his training was they would play three hours on a basketball court and the coaches would just stand and let the nine and 10 year olds Play 5v5. Sounds like an easy coaching job. Futsal. And then there would be some coaching and training in between. But the idea was nurture love, nurture creativity, nurture intellectual understanding of the game, of space, of passing, of dribbling, of taking someone on one on one. Um, We don't have that. So if this is kind of like Obamacare, like, hey, it's good, but let's fix it. And you have an administration that doesn't want to fix it. It wants to throw it out. So the fix is what U.S. soccer needs. Where can we continue to tinker? What other strategies can we implement from countries like Brazil or the Netherlands or Denmark that have smaller soccer cultures or ingrained soccer cultures? And then what do you do with the players that you identify who are, say, 14 to 18? And how do you get them into some sort of distinct separate player pool where they don't go to college and not that there's anything wrong with going to college, obviously, but they don't go to college and play three months a year um, and their skills become stifled in some way. So the emotions of Tuesday night were like election night. Fixing the system is like uh, fixing Obamacare. Mm-hmm. We should wrap this up, but trying to think of a comparison for the failure on Tuesday night and, and the game, and it was hard to, for the reasons we've already discussed, it was hard to think of a great comparison in team sports. But the one that came to mind for me that I think works is Dan O'Brien having all of the hype going into the 92 Olympics and being the subject of this huge ad and marketing campaign. And he was going to win gold in Barcelona. And then he's got like nobody, (laughs) nobody is like throwing uh, javelins at him. Nobody is like trying to, knock him down. He just like doesn't get over the bar in the pole vault, just like, and every, you know, he's got the first attempt and he misses the second attempt. He misses. He's getting like really nervous. And the third one, he just goes under the bar. And it's like, there's not really anything you can 
there's no consolation there. You don't get to go to the Olympics and nobody cares about anything that happens. And then, you know, four years later, he wins the gold. So the U.S. is going to win the World Cup in Qatar <laughs> in 2022 is the lesson. That's the that's the happy ending here. Yeah. We obviously. are Dan O'Brien. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're not. <laughs> but if the U.S. can take this horrific failure and implement some changes to the overall program and development of soccer players and come up with some alternative theory that gets us past the idea that, hey, we should qualify for the World Cup because we were in an easy region and then we'll go there and see what happens. That if we can get the mentality of, of, of American soccer beyond that, that would be a good thing. And that might be small changes and it might be gigantic structural ones. I don't know, but there is the wake up call element to this that I think is perfectly healthy. And, and, and also let's be real, like they're going to get a new manager, whether it's like Gerardo Martino of Atlanta United or whether it's Peter Vermees, they're going to bring in young new players. They're going to like win some game and Pulisic's going to do some exciting mm -hmm. gonna things and like people are going to be B minus team and, and people are going right. to be excited and it's going to feel like there's hope again, probably in the not too distant future. And maybe we'll be deluded, but um, <laughs> there'll be hope again soon, Stefan. You know, I've, I've been arguing for the last 20 plus years that it's a 30 to 40 year program. And I guess we have You've to start arguing that over for, for 30 or 40 years, 20 or 30 years. <laughs> So since about 1998, Project 2010, now it's just Project 2050. I'm Josh Levine. That's Stefan Fatsis. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. You can check out our show pages at slate.com slash hangup. Thank you to Afim Shapiro for recording us today, for Steve Lichtai for producing the show. Remember Zelmo Beatty and some soccer dude also. And thanks for listening. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>